future races will be uh, most definitely about AI, the quantum computer, newer technological applications, because those countries that will develop those applications, but also roll them out, will have a major competitive advantage. Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the podcast from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at Rain. I'm your host, Roger Baker. The field of geopolitics is having a bit of a revival. Geopolitical risk is a key challenge for internationally engaged businesses and organizations. The reemergence of a multipolar system is driving strategists to revisit concepts of geopolitical analysis. And even academia is rehabilitating geopolitics as a viable and important field of study particularly in Europe, but more recently in the United States. To talk about the trends in geopolitics as a field, I'm happy to welcome Dr. David Kriegmans, an Associate Professor of International Relations and Geopolitics at the University of Antwerp and the editor for the new Brill series on geopolitics and international relations. Dr. Kriegmans, thank you for joining me today. Hello, Roger. Thank you for being here. Um, to, to kick it off, uh, I'd like to ask, to what, what drove your initial interest um, in the field of geopolitics? Because obviously in the 90s, um, when you start to, to look into this field, it's not very popular at the time. Yes, it uh, started already 25 years ago. At that time, I was a, a young master student uh, looking into options for a PhD. And at that time... I was very interested, of course, in what had happened in Central and Eastern Europe. So the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Iron Curtain that had come down, and the question regarding, well, what are the borders of Europe? But quite quickly, when uh, I was a few weeks or even months in the library, I discovered um, that actually when we were talking about borders, that there was this field of geopolitics which was actually, well, we had spoken about it in class, uh, well, a half an hour or something like that as a relic of the past. But for me, it seemed that this uh, geopolitical language, the concepts and also the geopolitical theories would be at some level relevant to understand these issues. And so I started my own uh, adventure, if you will, because the literature was rather, uh, well, was rather scattered over journals and books, French, English literature, uh, German literature, etc. So I set out to write this book, which uh, in the end became my PhD, on trying to, well, reconstruct actually the geopolitical thinking from the 1890s onwards up until the 2005. So it was quite an undertaking. And at that time, it was quite interesting that colleagues or other scholars said to me, David, what are you doing? Uh, geopolitics, that is the 19th century. You should do something about uh, European integration or about globalization. And, and how interesting that 25 years later, the tables have turned and geopolitics is back at the center of international relations. Yeah, it's it's an interesting um, uh, path and pattern, and of course, I've been in the uh, in geopolitics uh, and geopolitical analysis for about the same time, um, same length of time, and certainly went through that that early period where very few people 
either recognized its significance or actually many people critiqued it as as a historic um, compared to the trends of the world. Uh, and today, of course, you can't turn anywhere without seeing the word geopolitics thrown out everywhere. And I think that's one of the things too your book does and, and that you're trying to do. How do you define it? Because clearly people use the word geopolitics in a thousand different ways and there doesn't seem to be a cohesive um, understanding of what that actually means. Yeah, that's true. And that was uh, one of the endeavors I set out to also to do in my PhD. I uh, had this hobby of collecting definitions on geopolitics. I think that in the end, and this was 2005, I had about 80 different uh, uh, definitions in all kinds of categories. But for me, uh, we need to go back to the basics. We need to go back to how uh, geopolitics was developed as a field of thought in the at the end of the 19th century which was an era which was to up to a certain level quite similar to today in the sense that there was uh, an increasing power politics um, location geography resources but also new technologies uh, think about the industrial revolution the railways uh, later the airplane and sea power those were all quite relevant to try to understand the changes in the power relations amongst uh, amongst different nations but for me uh, geopolitics is a scientific field that belongs to both political geography and to international relations. And it investigates the interaction between, well, actors, politically acting men, women, uh, and their surrounding territoriality. So what I try to do and try to do also in my work is to bring the geo factor back into the geopolitical analysis, looking at territorially embedded factors. And you could say roughly that there are three big categories of territorially embedded factors. The physical geography, and that includes the location of countries, but also, uh, well, the geography, um, access to the sea, but also the natural resources. The second is human geography, meaning, well, uh, groups of people, where do they live, the culture, also the languages. And then thirdly, the spatial dimension. And of course, when we talk about geopolitics, uh, and this is also the contribution of, uh, of French scholars, we don't only have to look at the state level. Uh, geopolitics and geopolitical relations also exist at the regional level or the local level. But at the same time, for us Europeans, uh, the European Union as such also is increasingly seen as a as a geopolitical entity. So also at a macro regional level or at a global level, we see uh, relations amongst uh, entities changing. And then you could connect that also to, well, the later scholarship, for instance, in security studies. And, and Rain is, of course, very well versed in, in risk analysis. And out of that literature, of course, we understand that geostrategic issues cannot be seen separate from geoeconomics or from uh, environmental issues uh, or from political issues. So in that sense, geopolitics has this ambition to be holistic, to connect variables with one another, to try to understand um, 
evolutions in world politics. And in that sense, there's a whole debate, of course, and I discovered a whole set of uh, schools of thought that all try to contribute to, to that debate. Well, I, I, but you know, our, the way I've come to simplify my definition of geopolitics is I really think of it with three, three factors in there. Mm -hmm. It's organized people, right? So that's the, the, the engaged organized people. It's mm -hmm. place and it's time. Yes, because but, because it it exists both in a in a geographic spatial component, but mm -hmm. also in a temporal component. Yeah, um, and based upon that, of course, you can also do scenario analysis, eh? making certain assumptions about that uh, time factor. Right, and and so as you as you mentioned in your in your research, of course, you've come across um multiple different ways of the ways people sort of define or interpret or or look at geopolitics there's multiple schools of thought that have evolved over time um and and again we're seeing you know there, and then there's critical geopolitics um and, and we're seeing some look back at some modifications i guess of classical geopolitics teasing things back out from the origins of geopolitics and bringing it back how are you seeing this evolve um in the academic and the research space, this this the field of geopolitics and how how is it being um, uh, uh, rehabilitated? Yeah, well, uh, I, I have been involved in that rehabilitation, if you will, up to a certain level in the sense that to together with my uh, colleague uh, Julak Surgai from the Geneva Institute of, Geopo uh, of uh, Geopolitical Studies, we set out in 2005 to uh, organize an annual summer course in geopolitics. And through that, of course, um, we've, we've now done it for 17 years or something like that. Um, we came in touch with, of course, a lot of people literally from all over the world that literally flew into Geneva um, discussing geopolitics and, and, and geopolitical theory. And, of course, initially it was interesting that it was a bit outside of the, the traditional university programs as, uh, well, in the early 2000s, uh, geopolitics was still being considered as either a relic of the past or a marginal phenomenon. But nevertheless, um, there is, uh, for instance, in international relations these days, uh, this increasing debate about a changing world, but also changing geostrategic relations. And in, in Europe, we, we talk a lot about uh, strategic autonomy these days. And you see that debate being connected with, uh, with for instance, the classical geopolitical thinkers and trying, trying to rethink some of their thoughts uh, up until uh, and trying to project that to today's world. Um, so in that sense, um, it is quite a lively, uh, a lively uh, uh, debate, I would say, and the debate exists at, uh, at many different uh, levels. There is also a quite rich in Europe already since the 1970s, uh, there is France, of course, where this debate about geopolitics and its relevance has been waging for a few decades earlier. And there we see, for instance, um, uh, scholars working on religion, but also scholars working on, uh, for instance, geoeconomics and geoeconomic relations. So in that sense, I think that... Um, that that richness of the geopolitical literature is something that that perhaps other scholars um, 
somewhat underestimate and where there is still, uh, and that's a bit what our book series, Geopolitics and International Relations, tries to do, is to try to offer a platform for a more wider debate between different schools of thought in geopolitics and different schools of thought in IR. For instance, you refer to critical geopolitics. Well, um, in IR, we, of course, have had since the 1990s this constructivist wave. Uh, so looking at discourse analysis and how meaning is attributed uh, to certain events or issues. You could also apply that to geo factors, and then you end up with uh, uh, critical geopolitics. So there is a lot of debate possible. And I believe also that the debate needs to be uh, waged also with historians, with geographers, uh, with specialists in international law, because we also can learn from their scholarship and apply that to uh, the study of geopolitics. Yeah, and I think that that synthetic approach, that multidisciplinary approach is really critical. And it's one of the, what I would argue is one of the strengths of, of geopolitics um, and, and I take it back to kind of uh, Mackinder um, back mm -hmm. in his definition of geography, right? The idea that as, as there's more specialization, there needs to be one place mm -hmm. that pulls on all of those specialized strings and yes. weaves them together into an inclusive whole. And, and to me, that's this role where geopolitics plays. It's, it's not contradictory or competitive to the other fields nearly as much as it's a place to try to bring them together uh, and, and look at the way they impact and interact with one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, uh, some people only uh, limit uh, Mackinder to the Heartland theory or something like that, but his analysis was much more rich because he talked about many different factors at the same time. Uh, location, economic power, uh, manpower, uh, what he also uh, discussed, and of course technology and the combination of all those factors um, and the, the effects uh, they had on, uh, on, world, on world events and, and relations amongst actors. Well, and let's, let's tease that out a little bit more because I know there's a lot of, um, a, a lot of the biggest accusations against uh, uh, geopolitical thought, um, even modern geopolitical thought, and particularly, um, for lack of a better word, uh, popular geopolitics, is that it's, it's overly simplistic and often geographically deterministic. And, and my reading of, of most of the, the early classical geopoliticians and most of the, the geopoliticians since is that, in fact, many are really not um, geographically determinate. And one of the things that comes across from the very start, as you mentioned it in, at the beginning um, by the late 1800s, is the critical role that technology plays. Even McKinder's Heartland theory, for example, um, comes from the technology of the horse and then the implication of the technology of rail. Um, we, we can see the follow-on geopoliticians looking at the technology of air power, or, or we can see how technology plays this role. How do you see the the role of technology um, in geopolitical analysis and how does that uh, help us avoid pitfalls of determinism? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, uh, Roger, because uh, it it really goes to the core, I believe, of of, of the current uh, geopolitical debate. Um, well. Of course, these uh, these theories they uh, made certain assumptions, uh, um, but um, 
many of the those that criticize geopolitics uh, what they actually implicitly do, but they don't really uh, recognize that perhaps, is that they are referring perhaps to the German uh, geopolitics school, which existed in the 1930s. Uh, Karl Haushofer is then the name which we remember, uh, who was a, 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 a military person that uh, was, of course, uh, quite this, well, not so happy about the ending of World War One. And then, um, well, discovered uh, geopolitics. Uh, it was a concept that was developed by a Swedish author, Rudolf Chelin. Um, and Chelin had, had uh, developed geopolitics as a kind of um, integrated approach to understand the state, the state as a living being, an, an idea that he had, took, had taken from uh, Friedrich Ratzel, um, and Friedrich Ratzel, on, uh, on his part, had actually applied the, the ideas of, um, of Charles Darwin to world politics, if you will. Uh, world politics was then a kind of survival of the fittest amongst nations. And if you start connecting all these ontological assumptions, uh, the world, uh, in the world, the only states are relevant, they are locked in a survival of the fittest, so a social Darwinist world, and geography is key. Yeah, then you, of course, if you add that all up and if you radicalize it as it was radicalized in the 1930s in Germany, then indeed you end up with a kind of geographical determinism. But in my studies, I also discovered that there was actually a whole debate even in the 1930s amongst geopolitical scholars um, that actually said, no, geopolitics is so much more. We need a much more refined and nuanced approach to try to understand how geofactors interact with all the other factors which you mentioned, including demography, but also technology. So, in fact, what I discovered is that actually uh, there are multiple approaches to look at how uh, geofactors interact with, uh, with, uh, with international relations and the other way around. I would like to mention Harold and Margaret Sprout because I believe that their work was really seminal in trying to establish how also other actors appreciated that interaction. And for the reader who is interested, there's more in our foundational book, Grounding World Politics and You, uh, on that. But of course, if we then look to today's world, so we say a whole, a, a complex world in which, of course, the geofactors are, are still relevant and demography, I believe, is also very relevant. Think about China. It might be a, a giant today, but uh, what about the future? Uh, in, if we look at future projections of China, the demography is going to decrease uh, quite rapidly in the upcoming decades. But I believe indeed that uh, technology is also a key factor for us today to try to understand how uh, world politics will evolve. I'll give a few examples. Um, we're currently in the midst of a war in Europe and we are witnessing an energy crisis uh, which uh, no one of my generation has seen. Um, that in itself is already a major challenge uh, be because perhaps uh, countries such as Germany have made some choices in the past to be 
to be rather reliant on the Russian Federation. That also was because they wanted to, to, to have cheap energy to be still be competitive. But you saw also a Germany that was investing in uh, renewable energy and in renewable energy technology. And actually what I believe is that uh, those countries that uh, can become successful, think about the United States, you can also apply it to the shale oil and the shale gas revolution. That was a combination of older technologies into a new application, as a result of which the United States again became uh, the biggest uh, oil producer in the world, and that has shifted power relations. But energy is only one example, of course. Um, the future races will be uh, most definitely about um, AI, the quantum computer, um, all, all, all these kinds of newer technological applications. And I would say also the standards that accompany those applications, because those countries that will not only be, be able uh, to roll out, to develop those applications, but also to roll them out, those countries will have a major competitive advantage. So in that sense, everything is connected and uh, we more or less start or we more or less end up with a geopolitical debate. Uh, today in the 2020s, which is actually quite similar to, uh, but then in a completely different era, uh, to the 1890s, in which there was also a kind of industrial revolution amongst nations uh, that created a kind of uh, power crisis, if you will. Right, yeah. And, and, and it's interesting to think of technology, too, as the vector through which people interact with geography and and therefore it can it can alter both in concrete terms and then we can discuss more and i know you mentioned the sprouts as well um, it can alter the perceptional value of geography at different moments in time based on different technology regimes yeah definitely um and I would say technology is relevant in, in many different areas. Uh, for instance, for Mackinder, also transportation, uh, transport uh, was a major, and that had not only uh, economic applications, but of course also military applications. Um, transport is one, uh, communication is another one. Uh, the very fact that we are able to communicate with one another, but we're on, uh, on the other side of the globe. Uh, that in itself has certain the 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 spatial data, so the satellite data, which is very relevant today, for instance, in its military applications in the war in Ukraine, for instance. So uh, energy. So there are uh, quite a bit of domains where those technologies can even yeah can be multipliers for power and and connection. And I believe we're literally in an era in which there's also almost a kind of crisis in the measurement of power. And for instance, I believe that the Biden administration also is very much investing in it. And uh, think about the CHIP Act, for instance. Uh, think about uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is also all about uh, clean energy and energy transition. 
the Biden government is also thinking very strategically uh, and also geopolitically, I would say, in terms of what kinds of resources are we going to need in the future. Think about cobalt, lithium, um, the capacities that you would need. So these are all very geopolitical debates in, an, in a world which is changing quite rapidly. Yeah, yeah. You know, and as, it, it's, as we look at that too, we see that as these, these ideas resurface, the ideas in strategic thinking also resurface that um, uh, na national self-interest is reasserting itself. And it's asserting itself not merely in the concept of physical borders, but as you note, in, in these ideas of resource flows, in the ideas of technology or control of technology, um, things that, that, that create uh, independence of action um, and, and buffer against uh, increased shocks and things of that sort. Mm. Yeah, and if you think about that, uh, so we both started 25 years ago. That was the era of, uh, well, uh, the market would solve everything. So the market would solve uh, uh, the just-in-time economy. It would also solve uh, other issues. It was as if politics had taken a step back. And today, uh, for many reasons, but we're also after the corona crisis, eh, where we as Western countries suddenly realized how dependent we were on all those supply chains uh, towards Asia, uh, that we today witness actually uh, an era in which the state comes back in and politics comes back in. And this is, there is this renewed debate about uh, strategic interests and how those strategic core interests not only need to be defined, but also how uh, governance need to invest in them. Um, and that, I think, is, is, is so fascinating. So it's really, it's, it's also in terms of the, the, the general model and the econ in terms of the economic model, I think we're also witnessing a, a fundamental shift here. Yeah, and as we, as we think about that idea of, of this reassertion of strategic interest and you know, bring it back to a different point that we were looking at. Um, you know, let, let's take the the Russian action in Ukraine, and Russia justified the action from a you know a, a very often a very classical geopolitical perspective of where are the borders, where's power able to push in, what's the what's the weakness if Ukraine falls into the hand of NATO, how have the you know as how has NATO expanded, and and looked at it in that that very um, traditionalist almost nineteenth century early 20th century perspective. Of course, the, the West uh, responded by claiming, no, 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 everybody chose to join. Nobody was forced to join. It's not pushing. But that gets us to this, this idea um, that I think is really relevant in the, in, that's brought up in the book and, and some of the, the, the past research. The idea of the difference between objective geographic reality and perceptional geography, all right? And that, that perception has a strength in and of itself. We can't discount the way in which Russia perceives the world or Russian leadership perceives the world and the physical world, even if we disagree with it, because it has heft in their application of policy. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's Harold and Margaret Sprout that uh, actually in an attempt to to make uh, geopolitics uh, uh, into a more uh, neutral and analytical uh, model, they they came up came up with this idea that of course there is the material material reality, but in order to understand foreign policy decisions, uh, perhaps not so much the operational. Uh, milieu, so the world as it is, the material world is important, but the world as it is perceived by central key decision makers, they call it the psycho milieu, if you will. And that brings us to a, indeed a very interesting uh, tension. Um, uh, yeah, uh, the Russian Federation is indeed thinking in very 19th century um traditional views of geopolitics, uh, the spheres of influence, uh, they so-called feel threatened. Um, Vladimir Putin has a very uh, selective revisionist way of looking at uh, Russian uh, Russian history and, and Ukrainian history. He actually denies uh, Ukraine's territoriality. But um, we, of course, uh, may say that this is not the world as it is, but we still need to deal with the consequences of the very fact that um, yeah, that the uh, that the Russians see that in 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 this kind of way. And I was through the Egmont Institute, which is the the Brussels Institute of International Affairs. We've had the opportunity uh, since, uh, I think, 2017 up until the corona era to meet every uh, six months um, Russian academics from the Russian Academy of Sciences exactly on this. Uh, we compared notes on world politics and often we were just speaking next to one another. But the very fact that we were doing that was still... Well, it was still quite interesting also from a scholarly point of view because uh, apparently also even at, a, at the academic level, we saw world politics, in, in, we perceived it in different ways. We used also other concepts. And that in itself is perhaps important because uh, I'm writing a, a book in Dutch on that now, uh, on this Ukraine war, and I, I call it a kind of systemic crisis. It's more than the Ukraine war. It's We also need to go back to the 1990s in terms of what went wrong. We had that moment of hope uh, in 1991, um, and somehow we've lost the opportunity to create, I'm looking at it from a European perspective, to, to, to create a pan-European security zone with Russia. Somehow Russia um, got back in its traditional view of uh, sensing that it was not welcome in, in, in the world order. So we need to take that perception. Of course, we can disagree with that, but we are still faced with the consequences. And also, yeah, it's going to be very difficult, of course, whether we will ever find a solution for the U Ukraine war. I do not think there is a military solution. So if that is indeed the case, then, yeah, we perhaps need to go back to the core of the 1990s. What went wrong? Where did the Russians perceive 
certain developments, and this had to do with uh, implementing the uh, Western shock therapy, the economic neoliberal model in Russia that uh, completely misfired and created the oligarchs. But it also had to do, of course, with the... Uh, the NATO expansion, which was not planned, uh, there was no plan in the 1990s. Um, so based upon an analysis of these cognitive geopolitics, it's still quite interesting to, to at least try to understand better how we got here, whether we can do policy advice. Well, we can try, but of course, there's never going to be a... Um, an ultimate solution, it still needs to be tested whether whether it is possible to find a non-military solution, of course. Right. And your, your experience with the Russians mirrors my experience with working with the Chinese scholars and, and researchers and such for years, that, that despite the fact that you think you're talking about the same thing, the, the perception is very different. And it's not in the sort of simplistic way of, oh, China only sees things through a uh, hundred years of, of uh, you know, abuse or, or, or things of humiliation, but that there really is a different perspective that has evolved in that particular geography over time in the way they have related to their neighbors, to their space, to their perception of the world. And that, that lingers for a much longer time than, than sometimes I think in the West, um, Western scholars like to like to believe, right? They, there's, there's sort of if you go back to that that early '90s, the 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 universalist perception that clearly the Western liberal order model won, and therefore everyone in the world by default thinks that way. Whereas if you really look at it, it's a very narrow geography, in a very narrow moment of time that created that thought process, and it wasn't the norm, on a global scale. But it was sought to be imposed, and now we're seeing that 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 challenge where these different—I don't know if we want to call them cognitive realities—but these different cognitive perceptions um, are are coming to a head, and power has been distributed in such a way that they're able to now um, assert themselves. Other countries can assert themselves against this uh uh universalist norm north atlantic norm that that previously uh was was seen as the only way or the inevitable way of the world mm. yeah definitely and the russians of course now push it I, 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 for that book in dutch perhaps there's going to be an english version um i i had to go to the, back to the uh the geopolitical schools of thought in in russia itself that sprung up in the 1990s where they had their own identity crisis in terms of uh, there was this implosion of the soviet union um but what was now their place in world politics and you saw uh, well, there were the Westernizers, the Kozirev doctrine. Kozirev was the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Yeltsin. So they said we have to become more Western, apply those recipes. There were the nationalists of Zhirinovsky um, that, uh, well, that were close to fascism almost. And then uh, there was this straight, uh, next to the communists, there was this strange school of thought, which is relevant now called the Neo-Eurasianists. And they even go back to Mackinder, but they flip things around and they somehow say that 
Um, and if you apply it to today's crisis, it becomes qu quite interesting. Uh, three days after the invasion on the 24th, uh, 27th of February, there was suddenly this uh, message on the uh, RIA news agency of, of Russian information agency saying um, it, was, it was prepared, of course. Um, from now on, Ukraine will no longer be anti-Russia. From now on, Russia, Ukraine and Belarus will act as one single entity. And when I read that, I immediately uh, went back to the books. Dugin uh, is one of them, but there are also others, these neo-Eurasianists, uh, which actually, um, well, tried to create uh, from the building blocks of that Russian orthodoxy, uh, that way of, of being different than than the others to create a kind of new mission for themselves. So I think we do not understand Russia well enough. And I agree with you, Roger, we need to go back to, to history, uh, to culture, and how it has been perceived by society. And of course, it is always instrumentalized in a specific political context. But I think we need a much more nuanced approach in order to better understand how it came to be that these Russian that this Russian political elite became so radicalized in in three decades. Yeah, fascinating. Well, Dr. Kriegmans, we're pushing up against my uh, my time limit here, although I think we could take this conversation for another couple of days and maybe Definitely. we'll have to. <laughs> um, but before we close, I wonder, you know, from your from your experience over the last uh, 25 years and from uh, looking at this, what would be the two or three pieces of advice you would give people who are wanting to start thinking geopolitically or integrating that geopolitical thought into their um, foreign policy analysis or into their business um, operations or things of that sort? What, what might you suggest to people? Well, first of all, keep an open mind um, in the sense that you need to think for yourself. You, of course, need to have a kind of tool or toolbox. Yeah, go back to the basics in terms of what, ge what can geopolitics offer you, either as a government or as a company. I think um, there are some similarities and some differences for the governments. It's more a kind of risk analysis in terms of what kind of a planning uh, do you need as a as a political entity and what are the basic factors around which you do s such planning uh, for now it's uh, energy is very important of course uh, security and uh, some of the main uh, economic choices that uh, need to be made for uh, companies and for banks and investors um, what is really interesting is 25 years ago, I think uh, these were separate worlds. But today banks approach me, for instance, and they say, well, we have difficulty in, well, um, evaluating those geopolitical risks. And I think that whether you are a, a politician or a, 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 or a policymaker or an economic actor, you need to understand that geopolitics, geoeconomics, security issues, geostrategy, 
they are not disconnected, they are connected. So the economic uh, tensions that we see today, for instance, with China, they are also connected with uh, the strategic dimension. So I think you need to keep an open mind and have this um, yeah, interdisciplinary approach. And I think that, for instance, uh, the field of security studies has now also evolved in such a way that it fully appreciates this uh, interconnectedness of, of risks. And, and that is, I think, uh, important. What is then the geopolitics? Well, I think uh, I always bring it back to its core, the relevance of territorially embedded factors, be that the physical geography or location, be that the human uh, geography dimension, be that the spatial dimension, and I agree with you, Roger, that you also need to take into account the time dimension or the technology dimension. So, you need to keep that open mind. You need to develop perhaps a, a more operational framework for yourself. And we hope that our book series, Geopolitics and International Relations, uh, with Brill Academic Publishers can contribute not only to that academic debate, uh, but also to uh, well, policy practitioners, uh, people doing uh, risk analysis, uh, because I believe that academia can help in well bringing together uh, those uh, insights of those different schools of thought and opening them up to a to a wider debate, and that's what we are trying to do in the book series. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a fascinating conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for listening. We've been talking today with Dr. David Kriekmans, an associate professor at the University of Antwerp and the editor of a series of books on geopolitics and international relations. If you would like to learn more about how to integrate geopolitical intelligence and analysis into your operations, visit rainnetwork.com and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening.